Good evening, listeners. It's Stephen, and I just wanted to warn you that tonight's episode is loaded with spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, uh, listener beware. Good evening, and welcome to Black Ink Red Film. I'm your host, Stephen Newton, and tonight with me, as always, is... Stephen Payne. And tonight we have a special bonus episode for you. We are going to be covering Dr. Sleep, the Stephen King novel, and the recent film by Mike Flanagan. So this is the sequel to The Shining, correct? It is the sequel to The Shining. Which means we're going back to the Overlook Hotel, aren't we? It does mean we're going back to the Overlook Hotel. Seems like a really, really bad idea, because we know what happened last time people were at the Overlook Hotel. Well, let's see what happens to our protagonists as they go back to the Overlook. Well, I know if we're going back to the Overlook, I'm totally just going to hang out at the bar with Lloyd, because people there seem like they're having a way better time than the rest of the hotel. Yeah, he is a gentleman's gentleman, so... Well, yeah. he served good drinks, too, so That's true. I'm, I'm at the bar. Well, let's get right into the novel. Yes. All right, so Stephen E., why don't you give us a little bit of an overview about what happens in Dr. Sleep, the novel? Well, in a nutshell, and I may miss some key points, so please feel free to jump in whenever you'd like, Dr. Sleep picks up right after The Shining. Actually, the, the novel spans a pretty much equivalent of a couple decades, following Danny, now Dan Torrance, who, when we the novel starts, he's still a young boy living with his mother, Wendy, following the events that happened that fateful night. He's still being, even though they're living in Miami, I believe it is, or somewhere in Florida, he's still being haunted by the ghosts of the Overlook. They're still, he's seeing um, the woman from 217 in his bathtub. He's still having issues with the horrors that happened that fateful winter until he uh, gets together with Dick Halloran, mm-hmm. the caretaker from the Overlook, who teaches him a specific trick in terms of being able to lock these apparitions into a box inside his head and thus gaining control of them. So he learns that skill, but over the course of his uh, teen and adult life, still struggles with this power he has, this shining. He eventually turns himself and becomes an alcoholic and really kind of a transient of sorts, going from bar to bar, bedroom to bedroom, gets in legal trouble until he finally uh, lands himself a job in a small town working at a little kind of amusement park called Teeny Town. Mm -hmm. Excuse me where he befriends a few people and during his stay and also gets a job at a hospice. Yeah. Most of it happens in the hospice. Most right? of it happens a hospice where he um, develops a unique skill where he's able to help ease patients into their final resting place, basically helping ease them into death of which he earns the name Dr. Sleep because he basically helps them just quote unquote, go to sleep. Now, during this time also, he develops this psychic bond with someone he doesn't know at first, but turns out to be a young teenage girl named Abra, mm-hmm. um, living some miles away. And she's a young girl who has an even more powerful, well, if case is the word, but skill with the shining than he right. even has. To the point where she actually then falls on the psychic radar of an organization called the True Knock, who we learn is an ancient and very wealthy group of kind of transient energy vampires who have been traveling the country in search of people, particularly young children, with the shining, or as they call it, who have the steam, 
and they track these children down and uh, essentially torture them, murder them, so that they can suck the steam out of them. And, right. Well, I'm yes. gonna I'm gonna break in right here just briefly. The Shining is like the active manifestation of having these psychic powers. Yes. And the steam is what you can extract from them Correct. when they die. So Correct. This this really is the bad guys, Rose the Hat and the True Knot. They're effectively vampires, but instead of sucking up blood out of people to stay alive and to stay immortal, they're hunting for these specific kids with the Shining, kill them so that they can get the steam. Correct. Right. right. And, and really the crux of the story beyond that is Dan Torrance and Abra sort of coming together psychically, then kind of meeting together so that they can go up against the organization, the true knot and really prevent them from killing Abra and doing any more harm to any other children in the world. Right. So, yeah, so that's it. What's interesting about this, but well, I guess we need to talk about the ending a little bit. So to remind our readers in the Dr. Sleep, the novel is a direct sequel to the shining, the novel. And so in the novel, the shining, the overlook does not exist. It gets burned down or blown up when the boiler goes off. And so while memories of the shine or memories of the Overbrook hang in the story, and of course the finale does happen there, the Overlook is just a campground at this point. It's a flat plateau. So we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on about how the film is able to use that a little bit more effectively. But the, the true knot, as Stephen E. said, is this cabal of these vampiric energy suckers and so they end up hanging out by the overlook because effectively it's like the Loch Ness or ley lines for this kind of evil spirit so they end up hanging out there anyway kind of like a ground zero for evil activity if you will right in fact and they they say the exact opposite in the film but again we'll talk about that a little bit later on so uh what do we like about it what did we like about this book as a sequel to the shining I think it's pretty, uh, it's an enjoyable read. It's for what I kind of consider it to be almost a B effort on King Stephen King's part to some degree. It's still a terrific read. It, I mean, I, I, I honestly didn't know what to expect going into the book. I, I got the gist. It was a follow-up to The Shining. That's about as much as I went into it with. And to me, it's really a, answers the question. So what would have happened to Danny Torrance after the events of The Shining? Right. And in many ways, it plays out sort of like you know Logan did in movie in the uh, X Men movies, mm-hmm. where we sort of find this guy who's down on his luck. He has this power, and he finds some redemption in helping this young girl who's also struggling with her power, understanding it, and and being pursued by a, a tremendous evil force. Gets into a lot of explorations about you know the 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 loss he had of a parent, albeit one who tried to kill him, in the in with Jack Torrance gets into a redemption story and that we learn about some bad things he did early on that we more or less let a young woman and her child die indirectly. Dan did not. Dan did, correct. Mm -hmm. And how he's now kind of using helping this young girl and saving her from the true knot as a bit of his own personal redemption along the way. There are some pretty significant holes with the story, in my opinion, but nevertheless, I thought it was a, it was an entertaining and exciting read. You know, kind of a B effort following The Shining and some of his other works, but still, I think, an admirable follow-up. Yeah, so you said redemption, and I was actually going to use that same word. The Shining, the novel, is so much about... I don't believe The Shining is about Jack descending into madness so much as I think of it as a possession story of the house possessing him. 
and the effects of his alcoholism. The young Stephen King who wrote The Shining, who was probably dealing with his own alcoholism issues, versus the redemption that many of the characters go through. So it's both how Danny deals with his own alcoholism, how he's able to overcome it. It's about how he's able to repair the relationship with his father, forgive him for hunting him down and understanding his father. And it really, it redeems the Jack character at the very end of the book. So in the climax of the novel, it is actually the spirit of Jack who comes back and helps Dan defeat Rose the Hat on the plateau of the Overlook. So yeah, so it's got some real strong redemption arcs going into it both with alcoholism and repairing familial relationships and whatnot so i thought that was really interesting what did we think about abra as a character Abra's an interesting character in that she's and this is we'll go for both the abra in the novel and in the movie um one of the things that's terrific about her in both is she definitely is not a victim in fact, she's pretty much a badass in both cases. She's very much a badass. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I was not really expecting that. I thought she, you know, the the conventional wisdom here would be have her really be a femme fatale, struggling and whimpering with the skill while she's being chased by the bad guys and having Uncle Dan come and save her. That's not what happens at all. In fact, she's really arguably the strongest in every uh, you know, sense of the word character in the novel. Once she realizes that once she gets these psychic visions of what the true knot has done to other children, particularly a young baseball player mm-hmm. and the true knot rose, the hat, the leader of the true knot starts getting her ahead. Abra just turns total badass, and she just really uh, is so powerful. She deals with the villains right away. She never really shrinks back from them. She's a smart character uh, she's really, really, very tough character to the point, And I don't know if this is again too spoilery or not. I thought they were going to, King was going to go a little bit different direction where Abra is such a badass in the novel and so powerful with her shining. I thought an arc they were going to take with it. It was at some point there'd be a dark turn where Dan and or whomever else start fearing that she's going to become Carrie where she's going to become a right. new leader of the true knot in that she's actually so powerful. Well, the so Anakin skilled. Skywalker. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah. Where she was going to be the Abra Skywalker right, of right. the genre. doesn't turn out that way, which is fine, but she is, I, I thought that might go that way because, and not to, not to get off track here a little bit, my real objection with the novel, which is not a huge one is the, the villains and the true knot, never really seem they're obviously a powerful force but they never really seem to get much of an upper hand the the the, our two heroes dan and his little entourage and abra almost always seem to be able to counteract everything they're doing and have a lot of an upper hand to where i think the story you know veered almost too much in the favor of our heroes always having the upper hand the movie not to get too far ahead i think corrected a lot of that yeah. But I think it's that the they never really seem to be the heroes never really seem to be in that much peril because Abra is so powerful and they are able to pretty much counteract everything the villains do throughout the story. So um yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to jump ahead too far, but my if there if I had a disappointment with the novel, it was and I had the same disappointment with Twin Peaks, the the recent re- reunion or whatever you called it, is that the overlook was such a 
powerful presence in the novel. In fact, it is the main antagonist in the novel, The Shining, and has very little to do with this this sequel, right? So the sequel's about you know, this is this could have been a sequel to the Salem's Lot for, you know, because it is another vampire story. So it's about Dan, it's about his adventures and redemption and whatnot. But the Overlook doesn't play that heavy. I mean, even in the finale, yeah, it takes place kind of in that area, but really it's 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 almost like a a, a character that was missing. Um, because they blew it up, right, in, in the novel. And I think that's one of the things that Flanagan, as the filmmaker, was able to play with a little bit more to bring it back as, like, this whole looming presence. Now, they did... Um, this is the other thing that I thought was both a, a pro and a con. The novel opens up with some really interesting... Stephen, you mentioned it, how the ghosts from the Overlook are still haunting Danny... And he's able to learn this trick from Hallorahan about how to lock him into these boxes. And of course, those come into play later on when he's able to unlock them and help mm-hmm. defeat the the true knot. But it, it's, it takes place in the beginning of the novel. And then we don't see or hear anything about those boxes until the very end of the novel again. So I thought that that whole what those things are doing and what those, you know, you've got these ghosts kind of like rattling away in your brain what happens with that i think i think that was something that i would have liked to have seen explored a little bit more yeah i agree and when it finally does come back you're like oh yeah that right Um, right yeah to me the book felt like and again i i enjoyed the book i thought it was an exciting read um i it felt to me that it was one more draft away from being a completely yeah yeah very good novel let me go back to your point about the overlook though because i think you made a great point here most horror, including everything back to our, our famous campfire tales mm-hmm. of legend and lore, usually rely on a sense of ins- of isolation and specific things, you know, claustrophobia locations to make them truly scary or to make them right. work. So, for example, in Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter is scary because he's behind bars He's on that gurney. We just have to imagine how horrifying he could be if he got loose. Um, once he's actually loose and among people in the other stories, it's not quite as effective. Yeah. The risk with The Shining was that, you're right, outside of the Overlook, can the concept still work? And I think it does in the book to a degree uh, or to a strong degree only because King's taking a different avenue. He's focusing on literally this character with that skill. Right. Which was kind of a point more in the book than it was the movie anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I think it's a different... That's why I almost struggle with calling it a sequel. Because it's almost more like a... Uh, uh, it's almost con- like a serial. It's more yeah. about the adventures of Danny. Yeah, I mean, a tr- yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. a lesser writer sequel would have been the further adventures of some other family's misfortune well, yeah, at the know, Overlook, right. you know. You yeah. would have somebody else go back to the Overlook and then build the Overlook back up again or whatever. Right. But, um, so I, I think there, that was a risk he ran. Um, it might have disappointed some people, I don't know, in the book, but um, ultimately I think it was an interesting take and it worked. Yeah, and I, and I, I guess I, I may sound like I'm being hard on it. It's like... It was a really good book, and we've read a lot of Stephen King recently, so I would put it in the... I don't know if I would put it in his top ten books by any means, or maybe... No, I wouldn't. Yeah, but it was still a fine read. Rose is an interesting villain. I think it's interesting what they did with the 
with the the vampiric elements of it um and it is great to revisit some of these characters i mean we don't see that a lot in his books um i guess you've got like the dark uh tower series but i don't know if we we have too many direct sequels to any of his work no i don't think i mean you can make an argument jerusalem's lot's short story and salem's lot were sort of connected but yeah, yeah. i mean he's not well, i mean he doesn't have to do sequels i mean yeah, he's not exactly. under any pressure to make right. sequels he can do anything he wants well i think he's done it well with like with dairy and like you know like a lot of interconnected stories and i think well, that's he's created pretty... his universe right yes, right exactly the kids like to call it these days all right let's talk a little bit about the film So the movie, Dr. Sleep, came out, what, last week, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Flanagan directed, wrote and directed it, who um, really, I think, one of our more interesting and talented horror film directors. He'd done... Yeah, um, I think it's brilliant. He's very good. He'd done, uh, he'd done a couple fairly underrated movies that shouldn't have been as good. I think he did a couple of the Ouija f- films. Oh, right. Origin of Evil, I think, is actually a really good movie. He did The Haunting of Hill House yep. series, and he did um, probably most, I don't know, famously, but he did... The, what should have been an unadaptable adaptation of King's novel, Gerald's Game. Yeah. And his whole interesting story about him walking around studios with this book under his arm for years until they finally said, hey, what's that under your arm? Oh, I think I can make this into a movie. And they find land. Right, land right. But um, the movie is, um, it's a good movie. Um, it, depending who you ask, it ranges between good and great. I put it between good and pre- and very good. I, it's about a three-star horror film, in my opinion. What's interesting about it is that several things. One, it's definitely aimed at a more mature horror audience. It's not a jump scare fest. Yep. Which uh, same with the book. Number two, it for me solves a lot of the problems that existed in the novel, but then brings up some brand new ones all to themselves in the movie. But third, and most importantly, from maybe the exercise we're doing here is that if this is an interesting case for me i had literally just read finished reading the book maybe two days before i saw the movie i don't know that i'd ever done that before in my life Hmm. so i had you know immediate connection between the two i mean i'd seen 200 dracula films before (laughs) my 50th year on this planet i finally read the novel right 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 dr sleep i'm watching reading book watching movie within a week of each other basically yep but for me whatever you think of both I think if you were to ask me, how do you do a faithful and respectful and effective adaptation of a novel into a movie, doing justice to the theme and tone of the book, but also respectful and, and to both media, this is a textbook in how to do that. Mike Flanagan does an amazing job of navigating two problems. Number one, just how do you take a book and make it into a movie? Number two, and this is probably the most difficult challenge that probably no one else in history will ever, in the future, will ever have to deal again. King wrote his Doctor Sleep, as you mentioned, as a sequel to his novel, The Shining. As we know, King was not a big fan of Kubrick's film adaptation. Right. Flanagan, bless his heart, had to find a way of making this Doctor Sleep movie a sequel to The Shining movie, while also being respectful to the novel the shining or dr sleep as a sequel and and he got king's blessing on it and it basically amazingly and i you know 99 out of 100 screenwriters probably couldn't pull this trick off he pulled it off it managed it does justice to both the book and the movie and um but is an effective sequel uh and uh, you know particularly to the movie 
Yeah. So I am going to be in that camp. I thought this was a great film, and I am a big fan of Flanagan's work. I thought Hill House was fabulous. I thought Gerald's Game was fabulous. I think you're absolutely right. He's got a really, you, you mentioned this, he's had a really unique challenge slash opportunity in front of him to create a sequel to adapt Dr. Sleep, the novel, sequel to the you know Shining novel, but also acknowledge the the masterpiece that was the shining and you know i know stephen king doesn't like it but you gotta admit it's a horror masterpiece and he does both really well and i think because he's able to do that some of the stuff that we just talked about in the previous segment because i literally got chills when they finally started going back to the overlook and you started hearing that shining theme music and you started and they I'll, I'll say recreated, but they started doing the drive up the hill, right? That was like a, that was like a, oh shit moment. Here we go. You know, that, that just King mm-hmm. couldn't do in his novel because he blew up the overlook, right? Going up to a flat campground just didn't have the same gravitas as being able to face the overlook hotel again. And what's interesting is, you know, Flanagan ends this movie very similar to how King, ended the shining because really you have to blow up the overlook right that's how that novel had to end the shining it's how this film had to end so he he was able to blow it up in his own way so i thought that was really interesting let's talk about some of the uh, i would say the big controversy i don't know if it's controversy or not but the big talking point about this film is how they handled the quote-unquote flashbacks or the recreations of these characters how do you think they did with that we're getting into spoiler territory but what the heck by the time this we're thing, assuming that you're, by the time yeah, this yeah. airs this movie is going to be heading to hbo anyway right, right. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute i guess but well okay let, let's let me back that truck up for a second so flanagan basically blows up the whole third act of the novel which actually is not a bad thing because i didn't think the third act of the novel was great anyway <laughs> and blow up is probably the right word <laughs> for it so the third act of the film while again sort of sticking true to what was supposed to be accomplished with the big showdown between Dan Abra and Rose the Hat takes place in a whole different venue. In the book, it takes place in the campgrounds that used to be where the Overlook was. In the movie, they literally go back to the still-standing Overlook. And per your point, there's this, you know, almost awe-inducing sequence where where the you know the famous music score strikes and we're going down that friendly road we have those you know now i think cgi recreated aerial shots like kubrick had and we get to the overlook and at the overlook dan winds up going in and confronting old ghosts Mm -hmm. um i won't go into too much details for those who haven't seen it yet but let's just say that a lot of the, the the big decision here so first of all they recreate the sets perfectly we go through the sets, Dan sees the door that his father broke down with an axe, sticks his face through it, sees red room still etched or, you know, scribbled on one wall. But then he also runs into the twins. He runs into Horace De- uh, Derwent or whatever his name whatever is. Yeah. Right. The owner of uh, the, the owner of the great the party. That guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The great party guy, Lloyd and, and another new bartender, wink, wink. Right. who seems strikingly and shockingly familiar and something we didn't anticipate. And, um, well, even the presence of Hall- of Dick Halloran and his mo- and Wendy, his mother, what they don't do, what, and this is where it gets controversial, what Flanagan doesn't do, he doesn't, 
is create CGI people as we don't have Peter Cushing from that one oh, Rogue, Rogue One, one yeah. in here in a fully CGI recreated wax dummy. We don't have those actors with bad de-aging techni- CGI techniques. Yeah. Well, they, they basically cast new actors in those roles. And, and I think I think it works perfectly because you know watching Rogue One when you see like uh, either Cushing or Princess Leia and you know you're in that uncanny valley where it's like they just look funny with this it's like you realize like immediately oh they've recast Hallerhan they've recast Wendy and you look at him and you're done with it in like a second and and what he did what was tasteful is he didn't get an impersonator right he didn't get someone that looked exactly like it or sound exactly like it it was like okay i get who this character is supposed to be and i'm moving on right yeah and i i I totally applaud the daring i mean he probably had to fight for that a little bit i totally applaud the daring of what he did and the approach he took you know flanagan's a gutsy filmmaker and that goes a long way with me right i think the effect works sometimes better than others i think the whole third act is challenged a little bit in that he's taking us so far back into if you will the member berries of oh yeah remember that from the kubrick film and all that he almost draws too much comparison to the kubrick film and some of the things he does and again not to get spoilery but there's one particular recasting if you will decision that i think is distracting it if you watch it again you're probably less distracted by it and you're able to get yourself more into it but i think it works more than it doesn't but i do I think, think what we have to do is we have to talk about it but maybe we'll do is we'll talk about it after the credits or something like that well, okay, but yeah, basically, a like I said, a familiar character winds up showing up as the new Lloyd the bartender that Dan has a conversation with. That is someone he knew very. It's his father. Let's just yeah. Him. All right, let's come on. Let's just let's stop let's fucking on, around. Folks. Okay. Anyway, yeah. So basically, Jack is now the new Lloyd in the Overlook, which is I think a really cool decision. It obviously isn't Nicholson playing him. Right. It's we believe it's Henry Thomas. Although there's been a tad bit of online controversy about that. So but. you know what was interesting is, is when we walked out of that movie, I thought, <laughs> I'm surprised that Henry Thomas wasn't in this film because yeah, he uses yeah. him so often. Right. And it wasn't until afterwards that I read it was, and I'm like, holy shit. I mean, when when he shows up, when Jack shows up, when it's Lloyd, right. and then you realize it's Jack, and you're like, right. oh, it has such an impact that I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it again. And like maybe now that I know, it'll be obvious, but... I completely didn't know, and I was actually expecting to see Henry show up somewhere in the film. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. I think, that, and that's the one character again. It's an effective scene, but you're sort of distracted by it, probably more so than others, because Nicholson was such an amazing and unique and powerful presence in the original yeah, film. Yeah, exactly. To recast him is, is, so to speak, is a little bit of a, ch- a challenge. Again, I think if you watch it again and you get your distracting, distracted element factor out of the way, the right. scene probably plays a lot better. Yeah. That being said, I, I, I think about okay, your options are either you recast like he did, you, you know, try to talk Nicholson into playing the role with some horrible de aging CGI, which is going to be even more distracting, yeah. or you basically have cartoon Nicholson up there, which would be even more and more distracting. I think they made the absolute right choice. Yeah. yeah. So your options are either you do what he did, or you just don't do the scene at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad he did it the way he did. Again, I don't think it always works perfectly, but I'm glad he took the chance. And again, I think it, it's a testament to this is a confident and gutsy filmmaker, and I, I applaud that. Yep. So I want to talk about two other actors. Um, first of all, Ewan McGregor. Um, I'm a huge fan of Ewan McGregor. I, I thought he did a fine job in this. I don't think he. 
I don't think this was going to be his seminal work. I don't think he did a bad job, but it, it was okay. But I would say Rebecca Ferguson, I thought was amazing as Rose the Hat. I thought she played it perfectly and with poise and with, you know, like ancient confidence, but still with vulnerability and anger and all that. So there was, you know, several moments of like the James Bond cockiness, but also she she loses a couple fights early to Abra. So we'll have to figure out who the little girl is that played Abra here in a second. I'll have to go look that up online. But she was also really good. Again, held her own with some of these, with Ewan and Rebecca and some of these other great actors. Those were some interesting scenes. I don't know, now that I think about it, some of the interesting scenes of like the time travel or the astral projection between the two. There was a couple of like big Lebowski like moments flying through Rebecca's like flying through to go visit, trying to find Abra. Yeah. I think that, um, that was like, when I was watching those scenes, I'm like, this is kind of, because again, it reminded me of Lebowski or space flying princess Leia in the last star Wars movie that I thought that was an interesting choice, which I don't know if it totally worked, but I guess what they were, I, I get what they were trying to do. I think the interesting parallel from what I understand was I think either Flanagan or King were apparently big fans of the wizard of Oz. And so I think those are scenes were supposed to reflect the wizard of Oz a little bit in terms of Rose, the hat, sort of the new wicked witch of the West. Yeah. So I think that's what they were supposed to be channeling. A little bit more. I liked them. I thought they were kind of surreal and in their own way, kind of elegantly creepy. Yeah. I, which is what the true knot was. Um, you know, I, I agree totally. The cast was terrific. I think Dan's role was a little, uh, Ewan, Ewan McGregor's role as Danny was actually, I think, a little underwritten. I think actually he's, he's uh, you know, there's some elements that don't quite tie together, but he's a little underwritten. The young girl, again, who plays Abra is fantastic in the movie, and Rebecca Ferguson's a... She's a fun, uh, you know, and and also kind of sexy, but also you know, frightening villain. She's extremely powerful, right? And um, but she's anytime she's on screen, the movie really does it. Just gains a little bit more rapid of a pulse. And we just paused here for a minute so I could look at IMDb. Kylie Coran, that's the actress who played Abra. So <laughs> you forgot the character name. Yeah, no, I forgot the character name. <laughs> So yeah, we want to give her a shout out as well. She she held her own quite well on that. Yeah, she's uh, she was really terrific. I mean, if she doesn't work out well in that movie as an actress, the movie doesn't work at all. Right, 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 right. All right, so this is the part of the show where we talk about differences between, or that the filmmaker made between the novel and the movie that drastically, or you know, maybe not drastically, but changes the intent of the character and or the story. The first one I'll talk about is, uh, well, we talked a little bit about this in the last segment, but they they actually consolidated several of the characters. Abra's grandmother or great-grandmother has a big conchetta, also has The Shining, and so they there's this lot of talk about how The Shining is um, passed down, hereditary, and whatnot. But there is a big subplot that gets totally thrown out of the novel, or out of the movie from the novel, which is where Dan and Abra are probably related because Jack, during his drunken, boozy states, probably slept with Abra's mother or something like that. Or That whole thing is aced from the movie, and I don't think... We, we didn't need it at all, right? Well, it didn't really work or matter in the book. So, no, it definitely exactly, yeah. was soap opery and, and was totally unnecessary for <laughs> for the movie. 
Right. I think there was some, and again, you know, a film is different from a novel, so you have to tighten things up unless you've got multi-episodic thing, but like they collapsed a couple of the characters, like the boss and the train guy and the doctor played by Bruce Greenwood, who's another Flanagan favorite. You know, he was Gerald in Gerald's game. His role was shrunk down. The one scene, basically. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. Abra's parents' scenes are all shrunk down. But I don't think that changes... I don't think any of that changes the intent of the main story, which is Dan's journey, Abra's journey, Rose. I mean, all those three characters, I think, stay true to their characters. I think in the novel, there's more of a redemption. We talked about this. There's more of an overt, I'll say an overt redemption between Dan and his father, you know, because Jack's character actually comes and helps him out in the end as a ghost. And in the movie, the redemption scene is more when Danny is getting his key for his sobriety. He's talking about, this is where my dad would be. And I think that's where he gets a little bit more of that redemption with his dad and like forgiving his dad and understanding his dad is maybe a better way to say it. For me, the, and this is a miss for the movie. Again, this is sort of one of those things that makes, keeps it from being a great movie in my opinion for whatever it's worth. And, and, and I, I, if I hadn't read the book, maybe I wouldn't notice, but so in the book, part of the redemption story is that Dan during his years as a raging alcoholic and general jerk, winds up having a drunken one-night stand with a girl, a young woman named Deanie, mm-hmm. who she he winds up waking up the next morning in bed with her. You know, she's asleep. He starts to leave. There's cocaine on the coffee table. He's convinced she stole some of his money, so he actually takes money from her purse on his way out, even though he debates whether or not it's the right thing to do or not. On his way out the door, there's this little, little small child in the room who he realizes it has you know loaded diapers and isn't being taken care of has signs of physical abuse and he pretty much you know leaves the kid behind with the mother and then he has visions later on through the shining that you know shortly thereafter both of them wound up dead right and so a lot of what his redemption story that makes more sense with him with abra in the book is that because he failed with these two he now has an opportunity to really redeem himself with another young person who's in real danger. And so there's a little more connection explaining why he's, he, you know, he feels the need to help Abra out yeah. among anything else that gets lost in the movie. Now the Dini and child character are in the movie, but it's not really a thread that's followed up with later on. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, those characters represent his rock bottom. Sure. And even as he's like trying to, come clean about his addictions and it's like he he has a really hard time even talking about those instances right right with his sponsors with yeah his, yeah and i would like sponsors. to in the movie have that haunt him a little bit more than it did right. i also felt in the movie uh, so the the character cons- consolidation i thought was spot on every decision that flanagan made about consolidating characters was in my opinion totally or eliminating characters was totally right Right. And and again, this is why this is a textbook study for anybody looking to adapt a novel, in my opinion. Yeah. Again, a lot but again the two threads I think he missed was that one with Danny in this past with the the woman and her child. Also I thought the whole Doctor Sleep part of his storyline oh, yeah. is good, but it still again doesn't really have the same connective tissue that it does in the book. Right. So I mean what it really shows in the movie is that when we when we meet Dan 
or when Danny, by the end of the first act or so, he's starting to get his act together, really. He's found a way of using the Shining for a positive harnessing following the, the incidents he had. But usually you need the character... He's not at a low enough point, in my opinion, to really completely justify this leap he's about to make with Abra and whatnot. Right, right. Excuse me, nevertheless... These are just things that keep it, in my opinion, from being a great movie, but it's still everything works well enough to be a good to very good movie. So, again, I think great decisions were made in this movie adaptation, and you can't really go wrong with the movie. You know one character that actually gets, that hits the cutting room floor, that now that I think about it, since we're into spoiler territory, Tony gets cut, right? So they talk huh. about Tony, yeah. but Tony has such a big part in both the novel and the movie The Shining... Danny can't come right, out right. right now, Mrs. Torrance. Yeah. And what I think would have been interesting is in this movie, which actually is different, actually, so this is a pretty big difference. So he does lose his mind in this. So Dan Dan does pull a little bit like his father and actually goes crazy and starts chasing Aber around. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, which does not happen in the in the Correct. novel at all. And I think that would have been a really interesting opportunity to bring Tony back out, you know, because now he's like taken on some of the aspects of his dad. I, I don't know. I just think it would have been interesting. I think you can't have Ewan McGregor walking around doing that funny voice. That's just going to take you right out of the movie. But it would have been interesting to see how Tony could have been coming with him a little bit more. And I know they've talked about that where it, I think I can't remember which novel it is. It's The Shining or... Um, this one where you actually realize Tony was his middle name or something like that. And so it was him all along hearing that voice. Well, I thought to some degree in the book, in the movie that Tony is sort of the Tony as an entity almost gets replaced by Halloran because Halloran is now sort of a ghost. Yeah. You know, talking to, uh, talking to him. So, and of course, again, I'll just, whatever, spoiler time. Dan sort of becomes Abra's Tony by the end of the movie. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you if you think about it, Halloran is it, Halloran. Doctor Sleep Halloran is kind of like Lloyd is to Jack in The Shining because he's actually <laughs> talking about his conscious, but more of a positive influence than a negative. Well, it's the angel on one shoulder, devil right, on the other exactly. shoulder. If you want to look at it that way, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you could have, arguably, you could have left the whole Tony concept out of the movie, and I, I'm thinking you would have missed it terribly. I missed it. Well, you just have always had a thing for Tony. I do, I do. All right, any final thoughts? We have looking at my notes here. Oh, the ghost boxes. I think the ghost boxes worked a little bit better. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, in the, the, the novel, he kind of kept... more callbacks rem- to it. Yeah, it kind of reminded you, yeah, I've got these things hanging out here. I, like I said, I... I had chills when they brought up the Overlook, you know, when we finally started seeing that again. So I thought being able to bring the Overlook back in as a character was, like, just so powerful. Yeah. I thought the scene, again, we're in spoiler territory, but, like, the homage of this time it's Danny backing up the staircase and Rose slowly approaching him the same way that, like, Jack approached Mm -hmm. Wendy in The Shining. I thought that was really well done. They did an incredible job. I liked this movie a lot more than I liked, and, and I liked. I enjoyed the book, but I just thought the movie worked as a movie well, but much better than the book worked as a book. Yeah, I, I I probably agree with that. Anything else we want to say about the movie? Well, I think one of the unfortunate things we found out is the movie, as of having opened uh, this past Friday, was is already underperforming, which is a polite yeah. way of saying it's in route to bombing. 
which I think has disappointed a lot of people, especially it's gotten generally good reviews. I think even online comments have been heavily in support of it, but you know, it's an inter it's an interesting, interesting situation. It's, I'm not terribly surprised by it. I'm disappointed by it. I'm not terribly surprised by it at the same time for a number of different reasons. Folks have actually compared its failure to why Blade Runner 2049 didn't do well either, which is you've got a sequel to a movie that came out in this case 40 years ago. Right. That quite frankly at its time wasn't a big hit either. Blade Runner wasn't even a big hit when it came out. True. And working within a genre in which your target demographic is, I'm sure they'll tell you it's 18 to 35. I think horror films is probably more like 13 to 25. And you're a 13-year-old and you're thinking, oh, look, here's a horror movie. Okay, well, I can't quite tell what it's about from the trailer, which is always death. And it's apparently a sequel to a 40-year-old movie. So before it, do I really want to sit down and watch a 40-year-old horror movie that's probably going to feel lame because that's way before when I'm, even my parents were born? Skip, I think I'm going to go to Netflix instead. Yeah, um, I'm with you, man. It's like I'm disappointed that it didn't do better, but I, I get it, right? You know, Stephen King's got a huge audience, so it's probably bringing in all the Stephen King fans so it's not like totally bombing but it's probably making the kind of money you can make when you've like you've rightfully said you're most I don't want to say millennials or Gen Z or whatever but I presume that most people let's say that were born in 2005 and earlier mm -hmm. you know their idea of horror is probably going to be like The Conjuring or sure. Annabelle or and this anything. is definitely not a jump scare movie no not at all well, well, and let me talk about the King thing for a minute. I, you know, I wonder if there isn't a little bit of King fatigue out there. Because that's way the first It film made about a billion dollars. Everybody saw it seven times. Apparently, he was going to see it. Then following that, we wind up with the underwhelming Pet Cemetery remake. And then the, in my opinion, terrible three-hour-long It Chapter 2. So there may be a little bit of King fatigue. And you're more in touch with the literary scene than I am. So you can probably comment on this better than I am. But... As far as the book it goes, I don't know how it how it, it really did. I'll, I've talked to a number of people who were King fans, and many of them had either not read the book or some hadn't even heard of it. So I'm just wondering if this Doctor Sleep novel even had that much of a following anyway. Yeah, I don't I don't have an answer to that. I I guess what I would say is honestly I don't know if this movie would have done better on Netflix than in theaters. Like turn it into a two episode thing or maybe a longer one similar to so i'll say this i would say it was much better than bird box for mm. those of you who saw sandra bullock's mm -hmm. bird box which is not to take anything away from bird box but you know it was okay and this is a much better film and i thought hill house did was great and he aired that so it just makes me wonder if there's even I mean, the theater industry is just kind of funky right now. If or, you're not a Star Wars true, or true. a Marvel movie or whatever, the the business is what it is. It's still a great film, so it may yet have its following down the road. This may turn out to be one of those slow burn hits over the course of time. I hope so. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I want that guy. I yeah. I would love to see more movies made by that guy. So yeah, and he may. Um, he's a talented filmmaker. Obviously, he has a big. You know, he's a great connection with the King material. I hope he gets to continue to work. I just hope it's he gets more stuff on the big screen. Right. Yeah, me too. All right. So here's a part of the show where we do a little bit of housekeeping. We didn't get any email this week, but I do want to give a shout out to Nolabert. 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 So he's following us both on 
our black ink red film communities as well as my thick skull adventure gaming communities all right no always a big fan so i just wanted to say thank you for being a fan and always giving us great comments and feedback all right and over on the facebook side of things right shortly before or after i don't even remember which now time flies in my world i posed a trivia question to folks leading into dracula our dracula show which was Christopher Lee had portrayed the Count the most number of times in films. Who was number two after Christopher Lee? And Eric Lucas, who interestingly enough shares the same birthday as Bella Lugosi. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. He guessed correctly, or knew correctly, or looked it up correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I know Eric, he knows his stuff. Um, John Carradine, who oh. played the Count for times more I than anyone never else, would have guessed that other than lee yes. i didn't see any of those and i saw so many dracula movies and i didn't see any with john carradine well keep in mind one of them was yes that's right billy the kid versus dracula <laughs> so carradine has quite the filmography well there we go <laughs> all right so this was a bit of a bonus episode we are still working towards frankenstein that was going to be a bit of a bigger one provided there's not another stephen king movie that comes up <laughs> that's right <laughs> Well, the Outsiders, right? So the Outsiders, the specials come oh, out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll pretend that doesn't Frankenstein it is. Yes, Frankenstein. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts, Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.